Good morning. It's great to be back with you. We enjoyed visiting the Elkhart Church, Elkhart Church uh, last week and uh, bring you greetings from them. It's a smaller group, but they do have a number of new families there, so excited about what the Lord may be doing there. If you would turn in your Bibles to Joshua, the book of, uh, sorry, the book of Judges. I always want to make it Joshua, but we're in Judges. Our congregation is going through a series in the book of Judges, and we've gotten now uh, to the end of chapter 10, the beginning of chapter 11. So you can find this on page 290 in the Pew Bible if you want to follow along. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Last time, uh, the, the, uh, the Scripture was preparing us for this eighth judge which is coming on the scene. And um, we were reminded of the situation in Israel. They had, they had turned away from the Lord and uh, calling out to Him for help. And so um, this is the eighth judge uh, whose name is Jephthah that we're introduced to at the beginning of chapter 11. So we'll start into this and then we will uh, spend a lot more time the next couple of weeks seeing uh, what we learn from Jephthah's life. Let's give attention now to the Word of God. I'm going to begin in chapter 10, verse 17. This is God's Word. Then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead, And the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mitzpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tov. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. It came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tov. Then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mitzpah. And in the reading of God's word, may he bless his word to us as we consider it together this morning. I don't know if you saw this, but a couple of weeks ago, our denominational college, Geneva College, made national news as there was, uh, unfortunately, a, a situation where they've had to fire their women's soccer coach. And uh, part of this was over uh, some things she had posted on social media. 
um, that had sort of pushed the idea that one could be a gay Christian. She used a different word uh, for that. And the school's position, the denomination's position, is that uh, a Christian cannot have an identity that is outside of Christ. In other words, we can be a Christian who struggles with a certain sin or another, but we can't find our identity in Christ plus something else. Our identity fundamentally has to be in Christ. And I think that this situation sort of illustrates one of the struggles that we all face, which is to find our identity in Christ and to embrace that and to rejoice in it and to find it sustaining and satisfying. And here we have before us another one of these more complicated judges, as we're going to see in the coming weeks. He's a mixture. Uh, But he is a man that we see even in this first introduction who seems to be looking for something outside of what God has given him. And this is going eventually to lead to some very difficult problems for him. And what we get when we look at this passage is we're reminded through Jephthah that God saves us through unconventional means He saves us, in fact, through a rejected man. But then God gives us an identity as those who are not rejected by him. And that that identity is the means by which we are to serve him and to commit ourselves wholeheartedly to doing his work. And so the main point I'd like us to see as we look at this this morning is that God saves according to his perfect plan, not according to our expectations And this allows us then to find our identity in Jesus Christ and to submit to his will for our lives. And children, if you want to draw a picture, you could draw a picture of this man Jephthah with uh, the the outlaw band that he uh, gathers around himself. Or maybe even before that, this uh, difficult situation with his brothers who drive him out of the home. And uh, we'll listen to what we learn about what kind of a man Jephthah is. Well, there is an outline in your bulletin. If you'd like to follow along, you'll see the first thing we want to notice is that God is compassionate to save his undeserving people. And so let's just remind ourselves where we are in the book of Judges. Uh, We've come through uh, the, the great salvation won by the judge Gideon and then this civil war uh, because one of Gideon's uh, children, Abimelech, tried to make himself king. That led to tremendous death and destruction. And then we had this little breathing room where a couple of minor judges will describe in the beginning of chapter 10. And then what we saw last time, which is that uh, the people of God, as we've seen again and again, they turn away from God. In fact, back in chapter 10, in verse 6, there is a long list The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals, the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. So they're out actually searching aggressively to find gods to worship other than the true God who has saved them. And when they cry out, uh, when they do this, God then sends the nation of Ammon, which is just to the east across the Jordan River, against them. And then they cry out for help, 
but God says, You've, you know, I've done this again and again, and you keep turning away from me. So he says in verse 14 of chapter 10, Go cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. And so the people then just throw themselves on God's mercy. And they say, uh, we have no hope but you. And it tells us at the end of verse 16, and his soul, that is God's soul, could no longer endure the misery of Israel. So God was moved to compassion by their suffering. And that's what moves him. And so what we're into now is what's the form of God's compassion? How is God going to express this compassion? Who is it that he's going to send to deliver them? And we get a hint of that then as we are introduced in chapter 11, verse 1, to this man, Jephthah the Gileadite. If you, if you look down in verse 5, you see that we read that it's so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Toph. So this was the man they sought out to save them. And some commentators think that this is actually trying to teach us um, what happens when we try to come with our own solution to the problem. And they try to argue that uh, Jephthah wasn't God's provision for them. That was just their idea. But I think the way that the, the, the passage is structured, it is clear that Jephthah was God's provision. I put in uh, your outline a quote from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. It's on the back of the bulletin. And what more shall we say? This is the Hebrews Hall of Fame. From the New Testament. For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. And so the Bible treats Jephthah as a genuine hero of the faith, an example of faith in God. And uh, I think that's how we have to view him. And so what we see, as we've seen again and again, the story of Judges is the story of God's faithfulness to people who continue over generations to be unfaithful. And God uh, keeps His promises even when we do not keep ours. Now, the children, I know it's been a week since we had Vacation Bible School. But uh, what we learned there, uh, the first day we learned about God's work of creation and making the world. And then the second day about the fall, how people turned away from God. And that brought sin and misery and death into the world. And then the third day, we learned about uh, God's commitment to save his people. Any of you remember the word that we learned the third day? Go ahead. Covenant. Very good. And for the younger children, there was another word that, that, that was maybe simpler for us to remember uh, that also means the same as covenant. Does anyone remember what that was? Covenant or a... Go ahead. A promise. Excellent. Good helpers. So yes, yeah, so that the, 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 our hope is in God's promise to save people who are unworthy. And this is helpful for you and I to remember because it's a reminder again and again that we're not saved by our repentance, by our faith, by our obedience, by anything that we bring to the table. We're saved because of the compassion and the grace of God. And that ought to encourage you as we come to this passage. Because if you think back on your own life, how often do you fail the Lord in one way or another? How often do we fail the Lord? And yet God does not cast you off. God is faithful with you. 
no matter what you find yourself failing to do or doing that you shouldn't do. And so God is compassionate to his undeserving people. And that is a great encouragement as we come to this passage and see his compassion. Secondly, we see here that God's way of salvation defies your expectations. And now in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 11, we're introduced to Jephthah, this next judge. This is the man that God is raising up. And it tells us that Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty man of valor. Uh, He is a fighter. Um, We saw back when uh, we were introduced to uh, Gideon uh, that God addressed Gideon as a mighty man of valor while Gideon was hiding in fear. And it was a reminder to us, well, he wasn't one yet, but God was going to make him one. But this man, Jephthah, is actually a strong fighter. Uh, This term also means he is a good tactician. He is a leader of men. So he is is an accomplished, uh, accomplished military leader. And he's from Gilead. So Gilead is the whole region to the east of the Jordan River. And uh, so this would have been part of the tribe of Manasseh. And he's part of this leading tribe. In fact, it says that he was the son of Gilead. Uh, Gilead is actually uh, the name of the grandson of Manasseh. So this, is, this would be one of the leading houses in this tribe. And the implication here is he is the oldest son. So realize, he is the heir. He is the one who should be leading this tribe within Manasseh, this family unit. That's who he is. Uh, But the text tells us there's a problem. He was the son of a harlot. And we don't get any more details. The word that's used is sort of imprecise. It just means that um, his mother was not Gilead's wife. And it's not exactly clear what the relationship was. So his parentage is different from the rest of his siblings. And, and what's being described here when it says Gilead's wife bore sons, and when the wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said, you shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. What, what's happening here is that Gilead apparently recognized Jephthah as his son. But after Gilead died, his younger brothers uh, conspired against him to have him disinherited. See, he, he, the implication here is that he should have had an inheritance, but they have disinherited him. And furthermore, they have gotten the help of the elders of that, that family, that tribe, the elders of Gilead, to get this verdict. So later in chapter 7, when Jephthah said, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? He's talking to the elders of Gilead. So they they worked with his younger brothers. They made a legal finding. No, you have no inheritance. And they drove him out of the family. And he fled to an area to the north. And verse uh, 3 tells us that uh, he went and dwelt in the land of Tov, which we don't know exactly where that was. We think to the east and to the north of Gilead. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. So uh, we're not quite clear on what's going on here, but he's a leader of men. So others come around him and they are making a living uh, as sort of a band of outlaws or pirates. 
Uh, I thought it was funny. The New International Version translates this not worthless men, which is which is a, a literal translation, but as adventurers. So um, the NIV is is trying to rehabilitate these guys. So to kind of put a positive spin on it. But we see here a number of parallels with the Abimelech story of a couple of chapters back. And he was also an illegitimate son of a, of a famous person, in this case of Gideon. And he got in conflict with his brothers. In fact, he killed them in an effort to become and to make himself king. And so at one level, it seems like, are we rerunning an Abimelech kind of a story here but remember, it's very clear in this text that what Jephthah does is under the Lord, Yahweh. He, he has them vow to God. He seeks to serve God. He wants God to deliver them, whereas Abimelech was serving Baal, the pagan idol. But it is profound here that the Lord chooses this man to deliver these people. Tim Keller, speaking about this, says he was a complete outcast and a criminal from a broken home, and yet God raises him up to be the Savior. Uh, That is the key point. He's not the Savior they were looking for. Uh, In fact, they had already rejected him, but he was the Savior that God wanted them to have. Again, quoting this time from Matthew Henry, he said that people had by their idolatry made themselves alien from God and His covenant, and therefore, though God upon their repentance will deliver them, Yet to mortify them and to remind them of their sin, he chooses to do it by an outcast and an exile. Uh, So Henry's take there is that God chooses an undesirable, at least in their eyes, uh, to save them as a way of humbling them. But I want you to see here what a powerful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ is painted here. Because Jesus himself was not the Savior that people were looking for. John 1, verse 11, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He was largely rejected by the Jewish people. And he came with a ministry of healing and teaching and loving lost and marginalized people. And even his own disciples were confused about what he was doing. Will you now restore the kingdom? Like, when are you going to defeat the Romans? Why hasn't this happened already? John the Baptist, who testified that Jesus was the Messiah. Then later, when John is in prison, he sends messengers to Jesus and said, Are are you the one, or do we look for another? Jesus was not meeting the expectations. Uh, The rich young ruler, you remember, who comes to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Sees Jesus just as a moral teacher, but not as the Savior coming to die in place of his people. And this is still the case today. People hear that they can have eternal life and be saved from their sins by believing in a Jewish carpenter who died 2,000 years ago. And they think it's just crazy. It's too crazy. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 1. He said, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. 
Intellectuals think the gospel is just foolishness. And uh, religious types think that the gospel lacks power. Because after all, it doesn't tell us what to do. I, I think we could live with it better if, you know, give me a list of things to do. If I could feel like I was achieving it, that I had a role in it, then, then this gospel would appeal to me as a religious type. But that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is Christ in your place. And you contribute nothing. And the problem isn't Christ. It's our expectations. The problem isn't Christ at all. He's not the Savior we were looking for. But He is God's Savior. Just like Jephthah was not the man that they were looking for. But God chose him anyway. So God's way of salvation defies your expectations. And thirdly, we see here that salvation actually requires receiving a rejected Savior. So uh, verse 4 tells us that the Ammonites, uh, after a time, made war against Israel. And you can go back into chapter 10 and see that there's sort of a two-stage process where first the Ammonites are just attacking the people there on the east side of the Jordan River where Ammon is. Then they cross over into Israel and they're raiding in there. This is going on for 18 years. So this is describing this process. And they're desperate for a leader. Uh, they have no one to lead the army. Back in chapter 10, when it says they're gathered there, the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, who's the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? So they, they have some soldiers who've mustered, but they have no leadership. And so in verse 5, we're told that they finally decide that their only option is to go and get Jephthah back from the land of Tov. And uh, there's a little play on words going on here because in, in Hebrew, tov means good. And so uh, Jephthah with his merry band of raiders, these bad men, so Jephthah's with his bad men living in the land of good. And so the elders go to bring him back from the land of good. And really the text doesn't do justice to what this must have been like. Um, children, we have a saying called eating crow. I don't know. Do you know what that means? If you have to eat crow, uh, and the reason it's uh, the saying is because crow is not a pleasant thing to eat, is that um, you have to do something very unpleasant. You have to admit that you were wrong. And uh, this is what these men, these elders of Gilead, have to do. But uh, it's clear that Jephthah is the only man with the abilities that they need. And... Uh, and so they have to go to him with their hat in hand, seeking his help. And of course, this is exactly what the Bible tells us about Jesus. Uh, we read earlier from John 1.11, right? He came to his own and his own did not receive them. But then John 12, the very next verse, But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So those who would go to this rejected one, those people are in fact saved. Peter writing about this says, coming to him, coming to Jesus as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. And there he's referring to Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing 
And it's marvelous in our eyes that Jesus is the one who was rejected and he's become the chief cornerstone, the one upon whom the entire building relies. And Peter preached a similar message at Pentecost. Because at Pentecost, he said to the people, you have taken God's Messiah and you have killed him. He, he was, you can't be more rejected than that. You killed him. And the people cry out, what shall we do? And what does he say to them? He says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. So you have to come to this one that you rejected. And you have to acknowledge Him as Lord. And you have to bow before Him and ask Him for forgiveness. This is the type of Savior we have. A rejected man whom God raised up as Savior. I don't know if you've seen the story that's kind of come in and out of the news in the last few weeks. That um, there's this uh, bit of a controversy because President Biden has... Uh, a, gr- a granddaughter that he refuses to acknowledge as his granddaughter. His, she's the daughter of his son Hunter, uh, again in an illicit relationship, a uh, four-year-old girl. And uh, so uh, people are raising this question, uh, why, um, why you don't even acknowledge that this girl exists? And um, I think Hunter's gone to court to make sure she never uses his name. And uh, what, what's interesting, right, is that, picture the scenario if uh, some years later uh, one of the other Biden grandchildren needs an organ transplant and we decide now to go to this four-year-old girl who's now obviously would be, would be older and say, hey, um, we need an organ. Can we get you tested uh, and see if we can get one of your kidneys? Uh, it, it, it's almost unimaginable the the uh, the level that that would require and yet that's what's going on in this Jephthah story they stole his inheritance he was most likely the oldest son in this leading family and they drove him out and now they're going to him save us we need you to save us And don't you see how this is pointing you to Jesus Christ? The one who was opposed, who was rejected, who was spit upon, who was tortured, who was killed. And God says to you, that's the one. That's the one you must believe in. That's the one you must bow to. That's the one you must put your faith in. That's your Savior. And the wonderful thing about it is that Jesus says yes to all those who come to Him. He's willing to be your Savior even after He's been rejected and so horribly treated because He's risen from the dead and He can truly save. So salvation does require receiving a rejected Savior. So fourthly, This text encourages you to find your identity in Jesus and not in the approval of others. And as we look at this more closely, we see this trend we've seen throughout, or we're seeing more and more, I guess, in the book of Judges, is that the judges may point to the Lord Jesus Christ, but they have serious flaws, and they are not the Lord Jesus Christ. We're reminded of that, that there's one that's coming who's perfect, 
And so you see in verse 6, they asked Jephthah to be their commander. And there's two different words here. So in my translation, one of them's commander, the other one is head. And if you have different translation, um, it may be leader and head. But the two, the two words mean something different. And this is actually important in the text. Commander means, will you come and lead our army? Uh, you're, you're, not, you're not over us, right? You're just leading our army so that we can win this battle. Uh, Jephthah rightly questions their motives. In verse 7, did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why now have you come to me that you're in distress? So he's, uh, he's starting a, l- a little negotiation here. And so they counter in verse 8. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we've turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head. Okay, so let's sweeten the offer. So now you're not just our commander, but you could be our head. That would be our ruler. Uh, so, so they're actually offering something more. Uh, Jephthah counters again in verse 9. Uh, he says to the elders again, if you take me back home, you bring me home again to fight against the people of, of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? Are you talking about just get you through this conflict or are you saying I will remain your head after this conflict is over? So we're seeing, we're going to see that Jephthah is not only a good soldier, he's a master negotiator as he carries out this negotiation with them. And so what happens in verse 10? The elder said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord in Mitzvah. So he basically holds out until they vow before God to make him their permanent leader, not just their military commander for this one campaign. And at one hand, we, we are, we're sympathetic with Jephthah. I mean, these people have treated him terribly, so why not negotiate in this way? But I think there's something profound that's going on here. Because what Jephthah is trying to do is to establish a dynasty for himself. And that is not what God is calling him to do here. God is calling him to be a judge. God is calling him to be the military commander. And he seems to want something more than what God wants for him. He seems to want to establish himself as a permanent leader of these people. And this is quite fascinating, what might be going on here. But here's a man rejected by his family who wants assurances that he will never be rejected again, that he will be affirmed as their leader and head, and he will be ruling over them. And uh, we're going to see that all such efforts to make ourselves uh, king or to follow our own agendas uh, end badly. There was a a ruling elder here when uh, Amy and I first came to town named Red Cooper, uh, I know the older folks remember Red, but uh, the younger ones wouldn't. Red was an, a ruling elder who served very faithfully. And I remember talking to Red after he had retired from the eldership as he was getting older in life. And he told me he just didn't know where he fit in. He just didn't know. He'd been an elder many years and he'd served in a particular way. And just, where is my place in the church? And it was very disorienting uh, to him.
And I think this is a common challenge that we all face as we age, but all the time. Like, who, who am I if I can't do this thing that I love to do, this thing that defines me, that, uh, that, that I've given my life to? And if you take that away from me, then, then who am I? I don't even know who I am. And uh, this is a good reminder to us that if you are in Christ, then you cannot root your identity in your abilities to do things, your role or your activities or your relationships or your accomplishments or your sins. These things are not your core identity. The Bible tells you you are a new creation in Christ. And in Christ, you have a perfect identity. The gospel is an amazing thing because it tells you two things are true at the same time. One is that you are more sinful than you thought you were. As bad as you think you are, you're more sinful than you think you are. And at the same time, you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever imagined possible. The righteous and holy Savior loves you more than you can imagine. That's the gospel. And that's where our identity has to be. Not in all these external things. I I love what Paul writes in Galatians 3. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's not to say that those distinctions don't mean anything. The, The point is that transcending all of that, all the external differences that we make so much of, is our core identity as children of God, as people in Christ. And if we can really understand that, it makes such a difference in freeing us from needing the acceptance of other people, the approval of other people. It frees us from having to build our own empires and dynasties. It frees us from hijacking the Lord's good purposes for us to do our own thing, which is sadly what we see happening in Jephthah's life. Find your identity in Jesus, not in the approval of others. And then finally, submit your will to that of God's appointed Savior and seek His purposes for your life. Jephthah was called to lead the people in this battle against Ammon. And that was it. He was not called to establish a dynasty for himself. But that's what he decided to do. And we're going to see that this will have devastating consequences for his family. God had prepared him for this work, but he was trying to do something he was not prepared for. And I think this is what we need to ask ourselves. What has God prepared me for? What does God have for me to do? And where might I be off on my own program trying to pursue my own agenda apart from what God has called me to do? The message from Jephthah is clear. God's rejected Savior. He's the one. He's the one who has died for you and given you life. And our goal is to take up the work that He's given us and to be content and faithful in that. One of the highlights we had from our vacation Bible school was Philip's daily updates on Amy Carmichael, the missionary 
who was from Belfast and uh, went to serve the Lord uh, in the 1800s in India. And uh, it's a fascinating story because at many points, Amy's desires got turned in different ways by the Lord. And at the end of the day, she ended up uh, starting an orphanage, first for uh, girls who'd been enslaved uh, by the temple, and then for boys as well, and uh, at one point had uh, nearly a thousand children in a village uh, that she was uh, running, basically. But um, when she was in her early 60s, uh, she was walking out on the grounds as they were doing some expansion, and she fell into a hole and uh, badly injured herself. And so for the last 20 years of her life, she was really confined to bed. And um, it's fascinating because she did not view that as an obstacle to doing what God had called her to do. In fact, she wrote, to will what God wills brings peace. And so she embraced what God had called her to do. And she spent the last 20 years of her life, she still was running things from her bed, but she started to write. And she ended up writing 35 books about the mission field and the work that God was doing. And around that time, she wrote that the world says, right, I've lost my strength, I've lost my youth, all I have to look forward to is decay, aging, and death. And her response was, no, not so. I am God's little child. And she was absolutely convinced that the best days of her life were ahead of her, were in the future, because she belonged to God. That's what it's like when our identity is in Christ. Not in our abilities, not in what we're accomplishing, not what we can do, not what other people think about us, but who Christ is for us. He was rejected so that you and I will never be rejected. And he wasn't just rejected by the people around him. He was rejected by God. That's why he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me when he was on the cross? His heavenly Father had rejected him. And because Jesus experienced that as the rejected one, you, if you are trusting in him, will never have that experience. God the Father will never reject you. You have an identity that is eternal, that is permanent, that can free you from bondage to what other people think about you. What a wonderful gift. May God be at work in our lives to help us see this rejected Savior. God doesn't save like we would do it. But he saves through a rejected Savior so that we can find our identity in him and that we can commit our lives to serving him. Let's pray and give him thanks for this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you for a man like Jephthah with his weaknesses, yet being one chosen by you to do your will. Lord, this is an encouragement to us as we recognize our many weaknesses. 
and how we thank you that we can come to you trusting and resting in our Savior, the one who was rejected in our place uh, so that he could be the Savior of your, your people and he could make us your children. And we thank you, Lord, that because we are your children, no matter what our circumstances are in this life, our best days are ahead of us. We pray, Lord, you would teach us to trust you and to be free from bondage of seeking approval and identity in places outside of Christ. We pray that each one of us would know you and have put our faith and hope in you. We pray if there are any among us who do not yet know you, that you might yet work and draw us to yourself. And that we might, Lord, commit ourselves to fulfilling your will for our lives. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now let's uh, sing back in praise to the Lord. We'll sing from the blue psalm book again. And we'll sing Psalm 118e. This is a psalm of praise to the Lord. Uh, But you'll notice the words that we mentioned earlier. That in stanza 14, that stone is now the cornerstone that the builders once despised. This is the doing of the Lord and wondrous in our eyes. That is a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ, the rejected one who is the chief cornerstone in whom our salvation lies. Let's stand. We'll sing Psalm 118 together.